Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Intrafish, and I am joined today by John Fiorillo here in Seattle, Executive Editor, Rachel Sapin, Reporter, and in Kuala Lumpur, Rachel Mutter. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hey. All right. Well, you guys are the stars of the show since you just came back from San Diego and the Global Seafood Markets Conference, uh, as well as our Women in Seafood Leadership Summit. Um, well, let's start with you, Rachel. Um, what were some of your takeaways from the event? Yeah, I can I can probably give a sort of a sort of uh, different perspective, I think, on GSMC maybe than than Rachel and John, a probably less informed perspective. Um, I've not really covered U.S. events very much before, um, so I found it quite enlightening in terms of the differences um, that there obviously are between like the U.S. consumer market in particular. Um, and maybe sort of European and, and Asian markets, which I'm a bit bit more familiar with. U.S. consumer habits seem quite different from European um, consumer habits. In terms of what was being said at, at GSMC, at least, um, there was definitely a lot of talk around U.S. consumers not being so bothered about sustainability um, as maybe they are about other aspects of, of buying seafood Um and also just just in terms of platforms on which, in which they buy seafood in in Europe and in Asia, obviously online retailing is becoming quite a big thing. But in the US, that seems to not not really be growing at all. Um, there also seems to be the the buying segment for seafood seems to be um, very much wealthier consumers. There doesn't there doesn't necessarily seem to be that that cheaper end of seafood buying but again maybe maybe i'm misreading this but certainly from from some of the evidence that was presented at gsmc it seems like seafood is is much more of a high-end item in the states than it is um than it is in europe so john what were some of some of your takeaways well i think rachel hit a lot of them on the head uh the sustainability um factor as it will as it is in buying a product there's a food marketing institute released um uh kind of a synopsis of a report that it will release release in full in, at the boston show and uh it you know it, it looked at what do shoppers look for when they go to buy their seafood and uh sustainability was on the far side of the i don't care side of the the ledger uh product quality taste flavor price those were all leading uh factors but seafood uh sustainability was one of the lowest ranks so i think that's that's true and it's kind of ironic because retailers in particular have pumped so much time and energy into sustainability messages and all the work they've done to you know integrate sustainability it's a great thing don't get me wrong but it's not selling. So um, that's fine. Um, as far as seafood being more premium than um, maybe in Europe, that's that's another part of the findings. You know, it, it the, the target audience is a uh, demographic with, with money. So, um, you know, that, that tells you a little bit about what people think about seafood because uh, they see it as expensive. They see it as a treat. There's one thing that came out um, from this FMI survey, which I'm really excited to see in full when it comes out. But one of the findings was shoppers need to, quote unquote, be in the mood to buy seafood, which is kind of weird, but makes sense. 
Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of walked away from, I thought the conference was very good. I thought there was a lot more focus on the market. But my take, my main takeaway was retail, uh, broadline distribution, every level of, of the, uh, the supply side seems very confused about how to sell seafood to consumers. Uh, and that sounds strange. The shrimp guys think, well, maybe we just got to lower the price. They've been seeing success in this market with the lower prices. Pollock guys want to make it sexy and, you know, kind of be on trend with everything. So, but you really got the sense that there, there is just a floundering out there as far as strategies for trying to get more seafood sold either through retail or food service. Yeah, can, can we talk a little bit about on the supply side and in particular on the shrimp? Because I know GSMC sort of tends to focus on on that a bit more. But, um, Rachel, uh, Mutter, you've, you also have been um, kind of tracking uh, Indian shrimp and, and simp rules, um, uh, et cetera. So is there any sort of new uh, guidelines on shrimp or any new indications of what might happen with uh, all the uh, trade wars and everything that's been uh, that's been going on? Yeah, I mean, that was actually, yeah, that was another really interesting aspect, I think, at GSMC. I mean, it was, it's evident that there's a lot of, there's a lot of shrimp on the U.S. market. There's a lot of stockpiled shrimp on the U.S. market. Um, and no one knows quite what to do with it. Um, this is a problem, obviously, obviously everywhere. Um, and I think to some extent they've had some success sort of selling it cheaply. Um, and it's actually increased shrimp consumption in the U.S. Um, because they've been able to do sort of offers on it because there's so much of it. But but how long that lasts, I don't know. Uh, you can only stockpile something like shrimp for so long. Um, and certainly, yeah, from, from, the, from the Indian perspective, um, I've been talking to some Indian producers. And obviously they're, they're the biggest supplier of shrimp to the U.S., um, and these new these new simp regulations. Well, they're already they're already struggling because of the oversupply generally. Um, so it's brought down prices a lot for them. Um, and then these new simp regulations that have been brought in, and there's sort of mixed views on how that's going to affect them. Um, the bigger players I've spoken to seem sort of reassured that they have everything in place and that it's not really going to be a problem for them. Although I think they probably would say that. Um, and there's, there's sort of evidence to the contrary that it's not a problem because uh, a lot of the IPOs that were going to be happening um, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, have all been put on hold. Nakanti um, was supposed to do to do a listing at the end of last year, and they're not doing it anymore. Uh, the same with Devi Seafoods. Um, so while they're all still very sort of buoyant and confident about things, um, I don't know. There's there's evidence to the contrary that this could be an issue for them. Uh, I spoke to someone at West Coast who sort of saw this as a as a good thing in a way because he felt like um, the Indian shrimp producers had been far too reliant on the U.S. market, um, putting all their eggs in one basket and sort of ignoring all the other potential for their products. So he thinks this is going to affect uh, medium and small players quite a lot, especially with the oversupply situation as it is. Um, and he thinks that it's just going to send the Indian shrimp industry in a different direction. They're going to have to look at look at other markets, um, maybe China, maybe Europe. Um, so not a bad thing, I suppose, all in all. But for the short term, I think it could be a problem for some of India's producers. Yeah. What were some of the discussion points, John, uh, on?
on shrimp at, at GSMC in terms of the the supply side and and uh, uh, and, and uh, you know trade in particular regarding China. Yeah, um, well, to to echo uh, Rachel, I mean the uh, n you know nobody could stop talking about the flood of shrimp that is already in the market and that appears to be coming. Um, a wash in shrimp, I think, is how a lot of people referred to it. Um, didn't really hear a ton about the China-Trump thing, so I think people are still kind of waiting to see if that 25% falls and what that may mean. Um, but yeah, it's just this this volume, you know, and it, and the it's terrible to say, but in years past volume was kind of controlled by disease. We'd have this massive disease that would take a lot of volume out of the supply chain and prices would stay high or, you know, at levels that were profitable or more profitable. Well, we've done a really good job, knock on wood, of taking care of that, of, of a lot of those diseases and mitigating and management, managing against them. So, I, you know, that's not a market strategy. We can't wait for a disease to kind of um, balance things out again. So it has to come on the demand side. And, you know, I talked to some people who are working on this uh, fledgling U.S. generic shrimp marketing campaign. Um, you know, they're still in very, very early stages. But, um, you know, it, things are moving along very slowly. It's mostly about kind of getting organized at, at this moment. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the lower prices are the the answer right now in the U.S. market. You know, that's the only real thing that seems to be moving shrimp. Right. Well, okay, let's shift gears and talk about the other big event that happened down in San Diego, and that was a, an intrafish event, uh, the Women in Seafood event, which is uh, now in its third year. So, um, Rachel Sapin, um, I believe this was your first Women in Seafood event. Um, Rachel Mutter was up on stage, and sometimes it's a little bit hectic to put your thoughts together and get an overview of the event when you're the one that's moderating. So, um, Sapin, what was your what were some of your takeaways? Um, from Women in Seafood, yeah, I thought it was a great event. I mean, it really you do have these. Unfortunately, at GSMC, um, I think they're trying to work on it, but you still have these kind of male heavy panels, um, um, largely white males. So it was nice to, to see a bunch of women in the room getting a little time to network. I could tell everyone was just kind of, you know, happy to have some time away from that, um, that environment. So that was really cool just to begin with. Um, and yeah, and I thought the speakers were just really impressive. Um, the women in Trident, Torin, and um, Ali and Annalise, um, who all spoke kind of about um, you know, ways to engage women from diverse backgrounds. And they, they kind of kicked off the event with a really cool inspirational video from um, Meryl Streep and Michelle Obama. Um, and then they got a, even a, a little message from uh, Trident CEO Joe, Joe Bundrant, um, where he was talking about the need for diversification in seafood. So it was just really cool to kind of um, see them speak and also hear from um, Michael, Michael Durham um, of of American Seafoods. Uh, she just had such a cool career. Um, she's the CEO and she's been with PepsiCo and um, other big firms before. And, and she just had like a lot of fun advice about like, you know, giving a go to hell budget, um, which you should go to our site to learn more about. 
um, and also about adopting children and becoming a full-time mom. I just thought it was really cool to like hear how these women got to where they were because um, it's not often you get to have those kind of conversations in our industry. Um, so I just found it um, really refreshing in that sense. Rachel, how has it changed since um, our last uh, two events, since the, the first one in Seattle and in, in Bergen? Are you hearing, do you, do you feel like there's progress being made in the course of the past few years since we've uh, kind of started bringing people together on this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, yeah, I feel like things have definitely shifted a little bit. Um, and that's what I, that's what I heard from, from a lot of our speakers, actually, that they've, They've felt some change in the last few years, um, at least in terms of um, sort of more open mindedness in companies about, you know, seeing the importance of diversity. Um, and, and I think that's where maybe the conversation shifted a little bit at this event uh, compared to the last two. Um, there was much more eagerness to talk about just diversity in general. So uh, maybe less of a less of a, a women's issue as such, a more of a. Yeah, diversity issues, right. bringing lots of different people, and not just about gender, but but about about race, about age, about about everything, about culture, um, and just having that as the start point for a company's sort of employment strategy. Um, there were some interesting statistics actually. I can't remember who was talking about it. It might have been Jennifer Smigelski at Tar Union, but but she, I think, was saying that um, millennials now, from their research, millennials. It's sort of a prerequisite for millennials in the job market um, that a company is is outwardly diverse in its in its employment. Um, and if they go to a company where they feel like that's not happening, then that is not an appealing an appealing career for them. And I think that's something Seafood needs to be really aware of. Um, and definitely, we will be doing more to highlight that. I think going forward, just that general diversity issue. Yeah, and I, you know, age is another one too that um, mm. that I, we were talking about. I think it was yesterday or earlier this week. Rachel is that, um, you know, that that's the other big thing that needs to be tackled now is how to recruit new people into the industry, and, and of course that you know that means a completely diverse set of uh, of new people coming into the sector. But um, that's a I don't want to say it's a ticking time bomb, but it's definitely something <laughs> I think the industry needs to be. Uh, made more aware of, and I know you, you've hit on this in, in columns, and we've talked about this in the past, but um, yeah, uh, another uh, another topic beyond women and seafood that I think we'll be diving into sometime in the near future. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what came to light this time as well was the was the sort of extreme differences between the career paths of these of these fantastic leaders that we had up on stage. Um, they'd all reached a uh, high level in their in their generally pretty large companies, um, but they'd all come from such different backgrounds and come in through such different routes. It sort of seemed very ad hoc. And I, I think seafood needs to be more conscious of how people can come into the industry and to make that path sort of clearer for people, um, because you don't really want to be relying on luck to get those good people in. So I think that's something, yeah, definitely the industry needs to be thinking about a bit more. Right. Uh, all right, just shifting gears a bit to uh, because you just filed this story, uh, Rachel Sapin, and it it's um, it, you know it keeps coming up, keeps coming up. Uh, we had something on it last week, but um, this is a larger issue that we'll we'll dive into and, and write about a lot. But uh, again, since it's kind of hot off the digital press, 
Um, tell us about uh, tell us about Norway's efforts to market salmon here in the United States and what they are running into and how they're trying to tackle it. Well, this is fun. It was another issue. Well, not fun, but you know, it's yeah, it interesting and, and timely. It can be. It is kind of fun because it's just so relevant to the rest of what's going on in news. But um, yeah, I just I spoke with the U.S. Um, um, Egil um, Sunheim, who's the director um, for the U.S. office for the Norwegian Seafood Council, and he kept talking to me about, you know, a lot of what we do is just kind of um, we combat um, misinformation about farmed salmon, um, which I guess is a really big deal in the U.S. compared to elsewhere um, for the Norwegian Seafood Council. Um, so I just talked to him a lot about how they have to combat um, things like um, U.S. consumers thinking lots of antibiotics are used in salmon and um, salmon grow up in these overcrowded pens. And um, so they make all these kind of interesting Facebook posts um, and the council does um, that try to talk about, no, like we actually use, like I'm not looking at the story right now, they only use 0.00034 grams of antibiotics <laughs> per kilo of salmon um, for what comes out of Nor Norway. Um, that's compared to like about a gram of per, a gram per kilo in chicken um, that's, in that's antibiotics in chicken. Um, produced in the U.S. Um, so they try to kind of put out information like that, um, and they just get a lot of awful flack still from people in the U.S. that, you know, shared um, on Facebook when they tried to post this kind of stuff, you know, um, salmon, is, this salmon is awful, it's toxic, it's one of the most toxic things I've um, that's produced, and, you know, it's, it's just really interesting, and it's kind of, um, it's kind of what they call um, the council calls fake news, and it's it's you know they kind of just are daily kind of battling this um, onslaught of negative uh, social media about farm salmon. Um, even though Norway seems to have one of the most stringent policies <laughs> around raising salmon, um, so and it's also like um, on the rise in terms of consumption in the U.S. Um, uh, the council is telling me that. Um, 15% of Atlantic salmon sold in the U.S. now um, originates in Norway, so, um, and that's only growing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what what they do, um, as this just kind of seems like a problematic time for any news, <laughs> including uh, seafood news in the U.S. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the the efforts in Chile to to do what they can to reduce antibiotics, or at least publicize their efforts to reduce antibiotics. That indicates that this is an issue that people are, are really running into the market. And um, uh, we, we talked to Nova Austral uh, last week just kind of to get an update on how their, uh, their efforts are uh, in the U.S. market, how, how their efforts are paying off to market their, their product as antibiotic-free. And, and they said it's, it's making a difference. And certainly if you go to U.S. Um, if, if you go to U.S. retailers, you'll, you'll see much more prominently uh, labeling that says no antibiotics used. You see it at, at Whole Foods, at Trader Joe's, and some of the more conventional retailers as well. And you do see it in the UK and Europe, but not nearly as, as much, uh, Rachel. Or I didn't notice it there as much. I guess it's not quite as hot an issue in, in Europe? Yeah. No, it's not really. I mean, I haven't lived in Europe for two and a half years, but yeah, this antibiotic thing has never really registered in the UK certainly, um, it doesn't, there's no, I don't think there's any labeling on packaging saying there's no antibiotics because I just don't think anyone, it's not really on anyone's radar. So I'm not quite sure how, <laughs> how, 
how that happened, how um, how Europe sort of avoided that becoming an issue, and maybe it's still going to become an issue. Yeah, well, I think it's it's definitely um, in the U.S. everywhere with meat and poultry and everything. So I guess this is sort of uh, a natural next step. I don't I don't know that you know there there may be some risks involved in trying to take an angle of marketing in that way. Um, but, uh, but if anybody can do it, if anybody has the budget to do it, it's the Norwegian Seafood Council. So, um, I, I think that, uh, I think that the move into the U.S. market by, um, places other than Chile is indicative that this is a market that certainly can grow, uh, much more than, uh, um, than, than it already is. So I, I think everyone's figuring out what they can do to get it to, uh, to get it to grow. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of the Interfish Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Remember that you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all the social media outlets. But uh, the main place to go is interfish.com, where we're publishing news 24-7. Thanks to Rachel being in Asia. Thanks to our colleagues in Europe and us here in the Americas. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time.